This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to you glads and pods. Welcome to the little wireless program coming to you from uh, from Gadigal land. We've always had an intimate relationship with animals. Many of us continue to rely on them for our food and clothing. But did you know there's a lot, there's a lot they can teach us about medicine. A little later, we'll meet the man who argues that doctors and vets should be one and the same. And it's a very plausible argument. But first, for our uh, monthly Pacific update, a special focus on deep sea mining. This uh, still future endeavour, seemingly growing closer and closer to happening, uh, presents some significant challenges, and some would say opportunities, for Pacific nations. Now, a little later, we'll check in with Tess Newton Kane and PNG academic Patrick Kaiku on the topic. But I'm delighted to first introduce you to uh, Diva Anon. Now, Diva is a, well, she's nothing short of a megastar of marine biology, a Caribbean-born deep-sea specialist. She's attached to the University of California, Santa Barbara, and she recently wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times, which uh, was headlined thus, A rush to mine the deep sea is underway. It must be stopped. Diva, could you uh, take us three or four kilometres underwater? Not many people have made the trip, but I know you have. And describe the sort of things you saw there. Thank you so much, Philip, and I've never had an introduction quite like that. Um, But, you know, the deep sea is just an absolutely amazing place. It is home to near pristine and important ecosystems. It is a remarkable reservoir of biodiversity, species from Dumbo octopus to blind white crabs that farm food on their hairy arms to glow-in-the-dark sharks and corals that are as old as the pyramids. I mean, really, the deep sea is just this absolutely incredible place that so few of us get the opportunity to experience so far. And something that not a lot of people realize about the deep sea is that it is absolutely integral to us being here on planet Earth and the planet being habitable for all life. And when I say that, I mean it plays a key role in regulating our climate by sequestering carbon and absorbing heat. It provides spawning grounds and feeding grounds and links to fisheries that billions of people around the world rely on. And it potentially in the future could hold some solutions to some of our greatest challenges, whether it is you know, antibiotic resistance or some other kind of medical breakthrough. And it also has cultural importance as well. It's a really special place. Diva, remind us what the miners and their investors are after. Yeah, so there are actually a lot of minerals down in the deep sea. And in particular, there are three types of mineral resources that are being sought. Um, The first, which is generating the most interest, are called polymetallic nodules. And they're essentially like cherry to potato-sized accretions of metal that sit on the seafloor like cobbles on a street, except that street is three to six kilometers deep. Then there are polymetallic sulfides, which are found at hydrothermal vents. And in case you don't know what a hydrothermal vent is, that's this incredibly unique ecosystem where super hot chemical-rich fluids gush from the seafloor and power ecosystems in the process. And then there are cobalt-rich ferromanganese crust, that one's and they're found on seamounts or mountains under the sea. And yes, they all hold minerals that are currently being very sought after, everything from nickel to cobalt to manganese to gold to silver, you name it. Diva, I find... uh the argument that this is a more sustainable uh, and less environmentally damaging procedure than extracting minerals on the land. 
but that is the proposition of the potential miners. You're quite right, Philip, and there's a lot to push back on in terms of whether mining is more sustainable in the ocean or in the land. First is that there is not a lot of science that actually backs those claims, the claims that mining the deep sea will be more sustainable than mining on land. And what little there is, is widely contested and also actually undertaken by many of these mining companies themselves. You know, with regard to whether mining on land is better or worse than mining in the ocean, actually, it's highly likely that both types of mining will move forward. It's extremely unlikely, basically impossible, that deep sea mining is going to replace terrestrial mining. So what it's likely is going to happen in the future is that we're going to see both types of mining proceed and just the destruction of both types of ecosystems. You led a team of uh, 30 scientists in writing an article for the Marine Policy Journal last year, which uh, drew the conclusion that there is simply not enough information about the deep sea. Exactly. So I, so this team and I were able to say that you know, when we're looking at the areas where deep sea mining may occur, just 1% of scientific categories assessed, and by scientific category, I mean everything from knowing what species live there to what their ecology is like to how they might you know, cope with the impacts of mining. We found that just 1% of those scientific categories had enough scientific knowledge to enable evidence-based management of deep sea bed mining. So and really, yet in the 1%. absence in the absence of that knowledge and uh, that clear direction about how to manage the ocean deep sea mining licenses are being granted exactly so far there have been 31 mining licenses granted by the International Seabed Authority. But it's really important to note that those licenses are only for exploration so far. They have not yet been any exploitation licenses granted. But many of these mining companies would like exploitation licenses as soon as this year. I'd like you to talk to me about the UN-affiliated agency, which has oversight, called, as you say, the International Seabed Authority. You have some problems with it. <laughs> you know, it's not just me, um, but but yes, there are certainly many um, deficiencies, I think many would say, with the International Seabed Authority. First is that it's essentially the butcher guarding the animals or responsible for the welfare of, of the animals um, in that they are not only charged with pushing mining and managing mining in the deep sea, but they're also charged with protecting the deep sea or the ocean environment from those impacts. So it's a bit of, you know, a bit of a dilemma there, right? But in addition to those challenging mandates, double mandates that it has, it also really has, there are some governance challenges in that there still are not adequate regulations in place to govern mining. Um, really, just the capacity of the International Seabed Authority is pretty limited so far, and it is wholly dependent on the revenue from mining. Um, so there's a couple challenges there, most certainly. And another big thing about this is that the minerals in areas beyond national jurisdiction or in international waters, which are being sought after by mining companies and which are being managed by the International Seabed Authority, are what's called the common heritage of mankind or humankind. And that means that it belongs to you, it belongs to me, it belongs to all of our children, it belongs to all of our children's children. And that's a really special thing, but it's also a really challenging thing to manage. And so these profits, these these benefits from mining should benefit as many people as possible around the world and yet to come. But how do you actually do that? There's not yet a mechanism in place to be able to do that successfully. And that's a huge challenge. Let's, uh, let's look at Nauru, if we might. It's played a pivotal role in getting the ball rolling on deep sea mining. Why? So Nauru has, so they are partnered with a Canadian mining company called the Metals Company. And they have basically triggered this obscure clause in the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, 
which basically says that the ISA has two years within which to put in place mining regulations. Otherwise, their mining of application has to be considered in the absence of regulations. And they triggered that nearly two years ago. This July will actually be two years. And so they've essentially sort of um, forced the hand of the International Seabed Authority and essentially could, this could lead to the opening of the floodgates. Um, and it would be something that would be very hard to dial back on in the future. Coming from the Caribbean with its uh, island states, I imagine you, uh, well, you feel related to the issues faced by the Pacific countries? You know, I certainly don't want to generalise because every country is different and not even all small island developing states are the same. Though, of course, there are some challenges that many of these countries do have. But I think what this comes down to is that this belongs to all of us and we need to make sure that it benefits all of us. And even though as many of these mining companies say this would benefit them and this would benefit the country that they're partnered with. And it potentially could, they say, provide minerals that many around the world can use. Actually, what it's also going to do is result in the permanent or irreversible destruction of deep sea ecosystems and prevent, again, permanently, many of the benefits that could be could be gained from these ecosystems without mining moving forward. Diva, thank you for that. Diva Amon, deep sea biologist and a scientific advisor to uh, the Bainoff Ocean Science Laboratory at the University of California in Santa Barbara. And in just a sec, the implications of all this for the Pacific. <laughs> Now, for more depth of information, let's go to, uh, to Tess, Tess Newton-Kane and Patrick Kaiku. Tess, of course, is from the Pacific Hub at the Griffith Asia Institute and uh, Patrick is a lecturer in political science at the University of PNG and a non-resident fellow at the very same Griffith Institute and uh, Late last year, Patrick wrote a paper for them about uh, deep sea mining and he joins us from Port Moresby. Tess, uh, you've heard me with Deep Sea Diva and uh, about the ecological risks and uncertainties of deep sea mining. The lack of information and the risks must surely concern uh, quite a few Pacific Island nations. Absolutely, Philip. And I think, you know, from the people that we've heard call for a moratorium on this activity, that's one of the big things that they point to is that there is just so little definite knowledge. There's so much more scientific research to do in relation to that that whole ecosystem of the deep sea that it's it's too risky at this stage. They would argue it's too risky to do anything as that could have significant harm, like start mining the seabed. Well, of course, they rely so heavily on the oceans for tourism and fishing. That's right. I mean, it's, it, it's you know, there are trade links, there's tourism, there's fishing. And as we heard from Diva, you know, we just don't know enough about how playing around or, you know, manipulating one bit of the ecosystem. We just don't know what that means in terms of how it affects the rest of the ecosystem. And that can have significant implications for revenue and also food security if people are getting their food from the ocean. Now, Patrick, you played a major role in uh, campaigning some years back against what was going to be the first uh, deep-sea mining project and they're in PNG and you and others were very worried about what it might mean, well, for fishing and to particular cultural practice. Tell me about it. Yes, uh, the... People of the western part of the New Island province in Papua New Guinea, they observe this ancient ritual of the sack calling. Uh, they use it as a, a medium of, uh, you know, the rite of passage for uh, young boys into manhood. And it has always been around for thousands of years, you know, 
parallel to where Solwara One, the proposed deep sea mining in Papua New Guinea was going to happen. So it you know, created a lot of uncertainties about what it could do to the SAC population in that particular area, because obviously SAC calling is, uh, you know, going to be affected as a result. Now, Patrick, you must share Diva's concern and Tessa's concern with the fact that we know so very, very little about the deep sea bed. Exactly. And this is basically what I uncovered in the research towards this particular discussion paper that was mentioned earlier. The statistics is that we only know 0.0001% of the ocean and marine environment has been studied by, you know, in detail. The, you know, 99.009% of what we know about is still unknown. Patrick, just remind the listener why there is so much focus on the Pacific because that's where, well, so much of this uh, mineral wealth is. Exactly, and the Pacific sits on, uh, you know, huge potential in terms of the rare metals and the uh, minerals that are going to, you know, drive the, the the current transition to clean energy. Back to you, Tess. It's uh, it's very difficult when small island states suddenly have, uh, well, a very attractive offer, an apparently attractive offer in front of them. That's, well, tell us about the Cook Islands Prime Minister's position. Yeah, so Cook Islands is one of the countries that's at the forefront of this of this work in the Pacific, and certainly the current Prime Minister of Cook Islands, Mark Brown, has pointed to the sorts of things that Patrick's already mentioned, that this is part of how Cook Islands can contribute to a transition to a low-carbon economy. He also sees it as an opportunity for Cook Islands to diversify its economy, which has been very reliant on tourism and obviously took a huge hit during COVID. Now, his position and the position of his government is that it is a sovereign choice of Cook Islands if they wish to access these uh, resources and exploit them and make money from them. And he's very, um, very disregarding or, or quite unhappy about other countries, whether they are other Pacific Island countries or countries elsewhere, seeking to shut down what he sees as a a major economic opportunity for his country. And, of course, it's very condescending when uh, other countries which have uh, screwed the climate so effectively sort of weigh in. Well, he he certainly made that point, but I think it's important to to, to just for the listeners to understand that some of the the most um, vocal opponents of deep seabed mining are other Pacific leaders, so people like Ralph Regenfarni, who's the climate change minister in Vanuatu, the previous prime minister of um, Fiji, have both made very strong statements saying that they would like to see a 10-year moratorium in order for there to be more research on this. Back to you, Patrick. You believe that uh, Pacific governments need to discuss the issues more with their populations. Exactly. And this is actually what is proposed towards the end of the paper that I wrote. Uh, you know, the Pacific strategy, the 2050 strategy of the Blue Pacific uh, talks about people-centered development. This one of those seven themes in this uh, regional framework. Uh, it seems that much of the discussion has been at the expense of holistic discussions with communities who are going to be impacted by a project of this kind in whatever part of the Pacific. So if uh, the Blue Pacific and all other areas of regional cooperation are going to realistically you know, be representative of the views of the Pacific peoples, perhaps it is in Pacific Islands' leaders' interest to involve their constituencies. Tess uh, Diva, as you know, mentioned in passing a, a Canadian-owned company called Metals Company. How are uh-huh. they behaving in your view? Well, the Metals Company are very significant in this space. They are uh, the, There are a significant number of connections, including by way of senior personnel, between the Metals Company and Nautilus, which was the corporate entity behind the Solwara One project that Patrick's spoken to. Yeah. So they're currently very active and they're particularly active in relation to Nauru. So the, the CEO of the Metals Company 
is called Jared Barron, and he currently represents Nauru at the ISA, which is where these big decisions are being made about when can this work start. Tess, you also point out that there's another operator in Tonga, uh, which is trying a different method of extraction or vacuuming, and they're getting very involved locally, training and finding apprentices and so on. Yes, yeah, so it's, I mean, it's interesting in light of what um, Patrick was saying about, you know, bringing the community along with you. The, the In Tonga, we've seen much more at work around establishing a responsible corporate presence, and that includes making sure that there are job opportunities for Tongan nationals, providing um, scholarships for study, supporting community events. So that's, an, that's another way that these corporate and corporate government um, partnerships are seeking to get, I guess, get community buy-in for these projects. Patrick, does what we're discussing threaten regional cooperation? It it does. So if we are going to be uh, contradicting some of the most important priorities of the region, so climate change and ocean sustainability is recognized as one of those very critical areas for regional cooperation. But if we are trying to deal with uh, climate change and ocean uh, health, but at the same time opening up our you know, oceans to be mined, and you know, it creates unintended uh, consequences that we cannot manage, uh, you know, people will lose, lose trust in whatever kind of uh, ideas we propose going forward on regional areas of cooperation. For reasons which you've already explained, there's a, a possibility that uh, more countries like Cook Islands and Nauru might go their own way. Tess, are you confident that this can be sorted out or is it? Uh, are we looking at a looming catastrophe? I think I think it's quite a serious issue, especially given that Cook Islands is the current chair of the Pacific Islands Forum and they will host the next forum leaders meeting. Now, that meeting's not going to be held until November, which is after this July date at which um, these mining operations could, in theory, start. I think that there's obviously, given what we've seen within the Pacific Islands Forum over the last few years, there's a really strong imperative to keep the forum together and to minimise opportunities for dissent or dispute. But so I think we what we really need to wait and see is whether those countries that have previously been very vocal about this and their concerns, whether they are pr- prepared to continue that conversation and ask some hard questions of other members of the group. To you, Patrick, PNG is about to have its first ever visit next week, I believe, from a sitting US president because uh, Joe is uh, dropping in on his way to the Quad meeting in Sydney. How is that being received in your country? Uh, this particular meeting by the President of the United States is making headlines and there are a lot of uh, discussions about what the United States President is going to you know, say when he comes here. Uh, it's perhaps... Uh, reinforcing the importance of Papua New Guinea, I believe, in, in, in the considerations of the United States in the western part of the Pacific. PNG is currently one of uh, nine countries listed in the intervention program, the Global Fragility Act of 2018. So I think, uh, you know, President Biden is just coming in to reinforce the importance of PNG's relationship with uh, with the United States. And Tess, we see the US is upping the ante. So are the Brits. The Your region of interest has never been more focused. Oh, it's, it's incredibly busy. Uh, Philip, I feel quite sorry for my friends and colleagues that work in ministries of foreign affairs and particularly the protocol people. They must just be exhausted because the, the, the constant stream of high-level visits just doesn't seem to be easing up at all. And, you know, with this latest of both Biden and Modi visiting Papua New Guinea on in and around the Quad uh, and also meeting with other Pacific Island leaders in Papua New Guinea um, when on the ground. He's only going to be on the ground for three hours as far as we know. So 
he's going to have to cram quite a lot in. I've been very fortunate to have a high-level visit from you two, from Patrick and uh, <laughs> and Tess. Thanks to you both. Tess Newton-Cain, Project Lead for the Pacific Hub at the Griffith Asia Institute, and to you, Patrick. Patrick Kaiku, Lecturer in Political Science at the University of PNG. Up next, we get some medical advice from the animal kingdom. Forget the the coronation of uh, Charlie III, his kingdom is dwarfed by the animal kingdom of which all of us, every living being, is a subject. That's why uh, we've done oodles of programs on what our fellow creatures can teach us about, well, everything from our senses to our social lives. Well, tonight we're going to meet a doctor who is taking a novel approach to his cases and his profession. Dr Matt Morgan is looking at our feathered furry and fishy friends for answers to some of medicine's uh, thornier problems. But first, he says, we have to, uh, well, fundamentally change the way we approach medical science. His book is One Medicine, How Understanding Animals can save your life. And Matt uh, joins us from Perth after a hard day at the office. Welcome to our little wireless program, Matt. Thank you for such a wonderful introduction. I love the link with uh, the coronation. That's beautiful. Matt, uh, I'm going to do another link, and that's to uh, a very famous work of French literature called uh, On Lost Memories. And as you probably recall, Marcel Proust began his memories or had them triggered by nibbling at a biscuit. Now, you know where this is going because uh, your current pursuit also derives from a biscuit, I understand, not a madeleine, but a hobnob. That is correct. And in fact, it's the first line in the book, One Medicine, which uh, states that it all started when Barry choked on a hobnob. Uh, I've got a love of one first lines in books. And uh, so that first line probably took me uh, the longest to think about putting. But you're right, it started with a biscuit. I was looking after a patient who had had a cardiac arrest, their heart had stopped beating. And the reason for that is because they inhaled a biscuit. And in fact, human anatomy is designed poorly from the perspective of choking on biscuits because your food pipe is just behind your windpipe, which is you know, not perhaps not intelligent design. And it got me thinking really that day, as I was looking after him, a flock of birds flew past the window. It was a rare, hot summer's day in Wales where I was working at the time and I'd cycled to work that morning and had some flies on my face before I showered for work and it kind of struck me why don't why don't birds choke on things you know not biscuits um, but flies and things they fly into and that really sent me excuse the pun down a rabbit hole to think about how animals can survive in extremes without an intensive care unit to help them. I suddenly realised that of course uh, jet planes inhale birds and that doesn't do them much good. Absolutely, that's a very bad idea. And amazingly, jet planes can inhale birds even when they're at their cruise in altitude of 40,000 foot. In fact, that was the record for a bird strike, um, a plane over Indiana in 2014. And it was a griffin flying, you know, without additional oxygen <laughs> at 40,000 feet. And yet we are struggling to look after patients with COVID because their oxygen levels are low. So, you know, how can that help us maybe? I'm inclined to give you a rarely awarded uh, koala stamp already because uh, you're returning my attempts at witty repartee with deadly accuracy. Now, <laughs> the idea of using animals in the study of human medicine, it's not entirely new, but uh, you believe there's a lot more to learn. Yeah, I think not only is it not 
new, but it's really ancient. You know, I managed to go to a cave in South Wales as part of my research. I was meant to go to the Galapagos Islands and COVID put a stop to that. But instead, I went to this this old cave in, in the Welsh mountains. And there's actually cave art in there from 20,000 years ago, found by an archaeologist called George Nash. And the cave art that people were drawing 20,000 years ago were mostly of animals and the pictorial representation of them was amazing. You know, the anatomy is correct, the proportions are correct. There's a famous elephant or woolly mammoth cave art from the, the, some caves in Spain. The heart is shown in the right position, the right size. So I think as humans, we have long lived alongside and understood animal lives and animal death. And I think that's somewhat been lost. You know, we, we now meet animals mostly as a layer in a sandwich uh, rather than in life. And I think we need to get back to that uh, older way of doing things. I'd like you to tell me why the fact that kangaroos have three vaginas is important. Wow, yes. So this is a surprise, in fact, even for uh, people who, who see kangaroos a lot here in Australia, and they do indeed have three vaginas. Why is that important? Well, it was particularly important for the development of IVF, or artificial fertilisation techniques. Now, the first baby born to that technique was Louise Brown, uh, which was you know back in, in, in the 70s. But Long before her birth, we had known how to do artificial fertilisation to make an embryo. That wasn't the difficult bit. The difficult bit was implanting that embryo and getting it to survive. And it was the study of marsupials like kangaroos and others that really showed us what scientists were doing wrong. They were trying to suppress inflammation when they inserted these artificial uh, embryos and actually implantation needs a degree of inflammation and it was the study of marsupials who lie between this crazy live birth and egg laying um, section of life that really showed us those facts. We also only recently realised how important uh, what can be described as kangaroo care is for premature babies. This is after is a successful pregnancy. Yeah, we've got some good friends who had natural triplets on the first month of trying, and unsurprisingly, the triplets came pretty early. They were born very prematurely. Uh, and the youngest of the triplets, the smallest of the triplets, was a boy called Joe, who is in the book, and he spent a long time in the premature baby unit. You know, they were worried Joe may not survive. And the thing that really allowed him to turn the corner was, as you say, this concept of kangaroo care, which is where mum or dad actually touches the baby, holds the baby, really bonds with baby through through the power of touch. And although it's called kangaroo care, it should probably more accurately be called primate care because studies in primates by an anthropologist called Robin Dunbar, he described how the development of grooming uh, in primates really helped to solidify those social bonds. So skin-to-skin contact is crucial. Absolutely, and it's not even just skin-to-skin. It was a particular, uh, particular strength of stroking, light touch, done at a certain speed, three to five uh, metres per second, which is light touch that we do naturally to babies and children. And that actually releases powerful drugs, much like strong painkillers we use in the premature baby unit. And it has been shown that that kind of care can help babies survive. And, and even more than that, he's shown these same receptors from the skin are also in our inner ear, so having wonderful voices like you have and having melodic chants and rhythmic music or even the speed of nursery rhymes can actually stimulate those very same receptors. As the uh, latest recipient of Late Night Live's uh, koala stamp, it is, uh, I think, important that you tell me about koalas and what they <laughs> reveal about the benefits of ingesting poo. Yes, that chapter I had to get through the publishers a few times because it contains a swear word. I, I won't swear, but it says why your children should eat poo. 
another word for poo. Yeah, I'm in Western Australia at the minute. I'm in Perth. And this is an area that the koala was not normally found here. It was introduced in the Pinaru area by, by humans. And when they were first introduced, they couldn't actually digest the local eucalyptus species. But because their keepers knew the importance of koalas eating their mum's own faeces shortly after birth, which is what they do routinely, they have a good tuck into that, which is called cloaker rather than faeces, they had an idea. And what they wanted to do was import the faeces from koalas where they could digest that local eucalyptus species, feed it to these koalas and hopefully change what we now know is called the microbiome, the bugs that live inside our guts, in order to digest eucalyptus. And it worked. And that really, you know, cements the importance of this concept of the microbiome. I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we don't have a number of vegan listeners, uh, Matt, at this moment. So this could give them inspiration. They could uh, be better off eating eucalypts, perhaps. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't recommend people eat other people's feces and stools, although faecal transplants in humans are now a thing. There are stool banks with tens of thousands of frozen uh, pieces of poo which you can uh, go and explore and faecal transplants have been used in humans for things such as severe infection with C. difficile, even autoimmune disease but yet yeah, certainly not something I would recommend unless you're a, a professional. Now thanks to giraffes humans can now survive space travel. <laughs> yeah I think the giraffe is probably my favorite animal in the book. I got quite obsessed learning all the amazing things it can do and that really comes from its extreme anatomy you know that two meter long neck uh, it needs to get blood to the end of that neck and perfuse its brain and it does that the same way that we treat patients with brain injuries i, I was working in the intensive care unit uh, just this week and the way we treat people after severe trauma with brain injuries we increase their blood pressure to get blood going to the brain and that's what giraffes do. They have the highest blood pressure of all land mammals, around 300 millimetres of mercury, and a massive heart to squeeze the blood up there. And yet, they get hardly any heart disease, which is very odd. You know, if, you, if your blood pressure was 300 walking around for 20 years, you'd have a, a big problem. But not the only The last that, time I took it, it was only 120, so yes. Well, you wouldn't be very good as a giraffe, but uh, much better as a human. So that's, <laughs> that's the good news. And how does this help astronauts? Well, it helps astronauts because the other problem they have, as well as getting blood up to their brain, when they bend over to drink all of that gravity pushes blood to their brain and when they run, it pushes blood into their feet. And so they would effectively be continuously fainting if it wasn't for the development of a anti-gravity suit, which is what giraffes have around their lower limbs. They have very strong skin with muscles which squeezes when they run exactly the same as a G-suit in fighter jet pilots and in astronauts, which prevent so-called G-lock. And so that was actually a development which has come from the giraffe. Beloved listeners, I am thoroughly enjoying, and I suspect you are too, a chat with Dr Matt Morgan, an intensive care doctor and the author of One Medicine, How Understanding Animals Can Save Your Life. Matt, you were... Uh, you say the resistance to antibiotics is a most pressing global threat. Well, we know about that. How do ants help? Yeah, ants are pretty fascinating. And there's a researcher in Bristol who's looked into the way that ant colonies deal with infection outbreaks. And there can be quite a lot of outbreaks because they hibernate in the winter. Uh, they don't have much access to outside fresh air and UV light, for example. So if fungal or bacteria species get into colonies, it's, it's a big issue. You know, the entire colony could die. So they do a number of things very cleverly. Uh, they do some of the similar things we did in COVID. They isolate their young. They change their social routes through the colony not to come into contact with vulnerable people. They even close their schools or the nurseries where the young uh, are normally kept, for example. They spray each other with carbonic acid. Uh, which I'm is, uh, sorry, they what? 
<laughs> they spray each other with almost an antibacterial hand gel, if you like, uh, to get rid of bacteria on the surface. And when they do use antibiotics, because they actually harvest some forms of fungus and bacteria to use as antiseptics and antibiotics, what they do is very interesting. They rotate that use. So rather than just use the same type for you know all of the winter, they change it from week to week, which can actually help prevent antibiotic resistance. It's what we now do in intensive care. And they combine different kinds of antibiotics together rather than use a single agent, which again, in humans, has now been shown to help reduce the risk of resistance. Now, this is a bit outside your terms of reference, but I can't help but tell the story. It's about uh, some creatures that are, well, a bit sort of ant-like, and I'm talking termites. We had a bicentennial. This was some time ago now, and you weren't here at the time, I'm sure. And I had a checkbook, a government checkbook, mm. and a couple of young pharmacists in Darwin came to me and asked if I'd underwrite with government money an attempt by them to, well, to create or to publish an Aboriginal pharmacopoeia. Hmm. So I handed over a pitiful amount of money and, I, and they came back shortly thereafter. And the most marvellous thing they discovered was that Aboriginal women traditionally go to the north side of a termite mound. Hmm. They turn some of the mound into a paste, which they suck, which deals with morning sickness. And when the pharmacist checked into the ingredients, they found it was eerily like a common drug given for that purpose Mm. in Western medicine. Mm. Yeah, you know, again, it comes back to this ancient knowledge which has not been lost in all communities, which is the amazing thing about some of the communities here in Australia, which which I am loving learning about, actually. You know, we preserved that through cave art in, in, in Europe, perhaps, but it's preserved here through actual human culture, which is remarkable. Uh, there's some similar stories of some South American tribes that use specialist ants on the tip of uh, their needles to help suture wounds, and what that does is reduce infection in the wounds because, again, these ants uh, coat their jaws often in antibacterial um, pastes and, and, and substances. So, yeah, I think there's a huge amount to learn from those traditional cultures about uh, the use of animals and, of course, uh, natural other non-pharmaceutical remedies. Now, you've got us up to speed with giraffes and ants and uh, koala poo and a few other urgent topics. Would you be kind enough to introduce me now to the ice fish? Wow, yes, the ice fish. What a crazy animal. And if your listeners are able to Google that name, it'll come up with uh, this amazing picture of a transparent creature which lives at the bottom of the Antarctic sea shelf, two kilometres deep, in super cold water, below uh, the zero point freezing point, about minus two, the water stands there. And the amazing thing about the ice fish is that it has the gene for making haemoglobin. So it could make red blood, which is our blood is red because of this iron bound substance called haemoglobin. You know, we are made from star stuff, um, which was a famous quote, which we are. But it doesn't actually bother... A, fam- a famous quote by Carl Sagan, who was once on the programme. Oh, wow. Well, that is amazing to hear. Yeah, it's somebody I admire and have read a lot about. And I, I can't remember his entire quote. It's in the book. But, it, yeah, again, an amazing appreciation of how we are inextricably bound to nature, life and, and stars, really. Um yeah, so the, the ice fish has this gene for haemoglobin, but it doesn't bother to make it. And the reason it doesn't bother to make it is because it doesn't need to. It still uses oxygen, so it has aerobic respiration, just like you and I do. But the way it gets its oxygen is very different. Just like we know on a cold day when you open a beer, that bubbles in that beer, if the beer is very cold, are much more bubbly. And that's because gas dissolves at a higher rate at lower temperatures and under pressure which is why when you release that can top, the pressure is released and the CO2 comes out in solution. So what the ice fish does is it uses dissolved oxygen under extreme pressure because it lives at the bottom of the Antarctic sea shelf, two kilometres deep, and 
is very cold because it's in super cold water. Um, and again, that seems a weird adaption, but there are companies all around the world trying to make artificial blood substitutes. So this is where ice fish become nice fish for us. Very nice fish. Uh, and again, you know, we do use that to some extent. There's a hyperbaric chamber here in, in Perth, in Fremantle, that can treat people with severe infection, for example, by increasing the pressure uh, in which they are, which dissolves oxygen in their blood, which can help fight infection. So there are adaptions which we've figured out, but the use of artificial blood substitutes, for example, may well utilise some of that technology. Now, we're running out of time, but there are some terribly important things I want to cover. You mentioned uh, your trip to the Galapagos was thwarted, but uh, the Galapagos tortoise and the Greenland shark that outlive us, so uh, sometimes by centuries, what's going on there? Yeah, well, amazingly, the human uh, longevity cycle, you know, we, we think that humans have been living longer and longer, which the average life expectancy has indeed gone up. But a lot of that is to do with improved infant mortality rates. The absolute upper end of human life has changed very little in hundreds, if not thousands of years. Uh, and I, I interviewed a, um, a nun called Saint, uh, Saint Anne in, from France who is currently one of the old world's oldest uh, people. And actually, a lot of the adaptions in people who live to extreme ages, if you look at their genetics, are also replicated in animals. So you've mentioned the, the giant tortoise. There's also the naked mole rat, uh, which does amazing things to its genes to prevent the development of cancer. It can have babies at the end of its life, which would be like a human having babies into its 100-year uh, birthday, for example. And again, although that seems extreme, there are real adaptions to how uh, this could be used in things like cancer treatments, because uh, cancer is a uh, an unrestricted replication of cells, which the naked mole rat and the tortoise can deal with, but we can't. The, your reference of, of the rat reminds me that a couple of weeks ago we did a program on the vast number of rats in New York City. Mm. And in, during that I learnt that rats can copulate 20 times a day. So there's something ticking away there that could uh, replace Viagra. Uh, yes, that probably wouldn't be a genetic adaption that uh, many people would be very keen on. Um, but it, 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 it's true and we know that in creatures like the naked mole rat, the reason they can keep producing offspring is because the genes which are called checkpoint inhibitors, which now are used in cancer therapies, are changed in a very specific way. So, yeah, that may well lead to advances in things like reproduction and uh, in things like cancer therapies. Now, as I end, well, I'm already on borrowed time. I'm way beyond the biblical allotment and... Uh... In, you know, I'm midway through the octogenarian decade, so I have been thinking a lot about my future and I would rather like to be deep frozen. Do you think animals might have, uh, well, hold the key to human uh, crow, crow, I can never say it, crow reservation? Yeah, so uh, this is increasingly used, you know, especially in places like Hollywood and in L.A., um, I follow the story of a, an amazing uh, family who actually froze their three-year-old daughter who sadly died of cancer. Uh, there's a documentary on Netflix uh, about it called Hope Frozen, if listeners want to watch that. Um, but again, it'll be no surprise that there are amazing animals who use low temperatures to preserve themselves all the time. Uh, I travelled to Alberta in Canada to visit a good friend uh, who's an intensive care consultant called Peter Brindley. And he allowed me to uh, travel to see the marmot in Canada that hibernates for something crazy like eight to ten months of the year with a heartbeat down to around three degrees in the frozen tundra of deep Canada. Um, and there's other creatures like uh, salmon and like salamanders in Russia which survive amazing extremes of frozen conditions. And the way they do that is they actually produce antifreeze for their bloodstream, which we are now experimenting with 
to preserve things like organs for donation. So again, there's practical uses for this, I hope. Finally, I've got to ask you about ethics. You talk in the book about uh, grappling with the ethics of eating meat, but what about the ethics of experimenting on animals? Yeah, I, I think I'm of the same thought pattern as the, the amazing Australian philosopher Peter Singer, who really inspired generations of people to consider their their eating of meat back with his book Animal Liberation in the 70s. And in fact, there's a new edition of Animal Liberation coming out, uh, I think this May actually. Um, so I spoke to Peter uh, in Melbourne. And in fact, I, I wrote a dissertation when I was an undergraduate, which was called The Vegetarian Vivisectionist. Can you be a vegetarian and also, to some degree, see that animal experimentation under very selected situations may be suitable? And you know, even Peter Singer agrees that there are situations which directly lead to the survival or the saving of human lives in a direct way may mean that that can be justified. You know, I definitely want to be in a place where they are not needed at all. Uh, and that is getting closer through the use of tissue culture, simulation and other means. And we're not there yet, but that is absolutely ultimately where we need to be at. We are sadly not there at this very moment. Peter is another old friend of the programmes, mm. incidentally, and uh, I know you think, uh, under the heading of One Medicine, that doctors should be interacting with vets. Yeah, I'd go even further. I think we should be training with vets. Why aren't we training doctors and non-human uh, doctors side by side? You know, they are in some places. There's some places in the UK and overseas who do this. Um, why is it that doctors swear an oath to just one species on Earth, the human, and vets swear an oath to every other species on Earth? Why are the departments of medicine and veterinary science separate? And yet we know there's so much shared evolutionary history, anatomy, and through the book, you know, ways we can work together. And I think in the age of COVID, this has come home to to, to roost, so to speak. You know, we, we know human health and animal health are inextricably linked. You know, we're in an age, an era of zoonotic disease, antibiotic resistance, climate change, thinking about habitat loss. So you know, I think now is the time to re-explore these links. We've heard the wise words of uh, Dr Matt Morgan, the latest recipient of the koala stamp with gum leaf clusters. Uh, Matt is an intensive care doctor, a researcher and an author. His new book is One Medicine, How Understanding Animals Can Save Your Life, published by Simon & Schuster. Matt, it's been a delight. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. And maybe I'll just leave listeners with one final quote, which is from Winnie the Pooh, which says, lots of people talk to animals, but not many people listen. That's the problem. <laughs> and that's your lot on our next and intimate look at the Ukraine and the 19th century psychonauts who got high in the name of science. to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.